Welcome to Rails, Ales, and Old Towns. Well, I hope you're up for a pint, because today I'm joined by John Warland of Liquid History, a gentleman who literally wrote the book on Great London Pubs. We take a tour of some of the best pubs in the city as John explains how these historic watering holes tell the story of London, while sharing details about their quintessentially British atmosphere. From simple pubs on the River Thames to places whose interiors are works of art, we cover it all. Be sure to check out the episode description because I put a link in there that will give you some more information about a few of the great pubs we talk about. And if you'd like the occasional hit of Europe travel inspiration in between episodes, feel free to give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Rails Ales Old Towns. All right, let's go to London. What's the gap between the train and the platform? All right, so let's welcome in now John Warland, co-founder of the award-winning Liquid History Tours, and author of Liquid History, an illustrated guide to Great London pubs. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining me today, John. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, good to be here. Good to be here. We should be in the pub, but we will uh, have a chat outside the pub anyway. It's a little early. What what time do pubs usually open in London? Actually, in London they can open from eight a.m. We also have the early opening uh, pubs, such as the Market Porter and maybe the Fox and Anchor down in Smithfield Meat Markets. For those who are working twenty four hours a day on the NHS or the meat markets, they get to go for you know, a glass of ale, maybe some champagne on the way to or from work. So those pubs are also open for the commuters. I've met commuters who work in the city of London in finance. And as they get off the train at 6am, they can pop into the market porter, have a pint en route to work in the morning. So so is that a remnant from like shift work, you think? Like things opening up um, all night? All night? Did you say that some places have a 24 hour license? You can have a 24-hour license in London. That's unusual for a pub um, due to the expense of opening that long, what you pay your staff, extra security, etc. But um, the ones I'm talking about, they are historic local licenses to serve the night shift workers of Smithfield Meat Market. So they're bringing our meat in from all around the southeast and possibly further afield from England. And then they're working through the night, finishing as the sun rises, and then just going for a beer to celebrate, yeah. have some, take some meat home, sleep it all off, and then go <laughs> again the next morning. Take some meat home after a few pints. We've all done it. So how did how did you end up with the best uh, with the best job in the world? I have a background in small group experiential tourism. So I actually used to guide tours in Morocco. I also did an undergraduate degree in the city of London. So I think if you combine those two things, a huge passion for London, sharing it with small groups and like-minded individuals. I was just fascinated by London. We did all sorts of walking tours, food tours, street art tours, bike tours. But realistically, amongst all those tours, you'd always go to the pub, maybe halfway along, certainly at the end, and just chat and kind of share the good times. And that's when it the penny drops that really the pubs of London, although they are great architectural benchmarks for us, they are the conduit to all the history of the great city. So since the Romans clip-clopped across London Bridge 2,000 years ago, we needed places of shelter, food, warmth, accommodation for humanity to commune, possibly around a fire, and just do business, fall in love, and just, yeah, you can talk about anything good or anything bad is often linked to a pub through history. Yeah, and, um, you know, like, 
when I'm writing about London or, or talking about London people, you know, you, there's not enough superlatives to describe this city. I mean, you can do anything you want, everything you can think of, you can find in this city. But it can definitely, from a tourist perspective, it can definitely be exhausting, you know, especially if you're trying to tick off all these lists, you know, all these things you need to see. So I'm, you know, always telling people like, one, you need to go to pubs. You need to rest in between maybe going to see the Tower of London or, you know, going to this, spend a few hours in the museum. And, you know, I would I would assume you would agree that the pubs in themselves should be up there on that list of sites of London. Oh, completely. They are not unique to London, not unique to England or the rest of the United Kingdom. But the London pubs, I think there's still around three and a half thousand. They're just great places as you say to take a break or define your detour you're going to get hungry you're going to need the bathroom by the british museum you're going to go to the museum tavern and when you're there you can see oh yeah Karl Marx and people like that probably had a drink in there dickens would have popped in there and that's kind of as important to me an informal social history as what you'll see with the elgin marbles or the rosetta stone inside the british museum they are not even ours we're we're kind of borrowing them informally but the pubs the pubs are ours i mean paris has its cafes new york might have its delis and restaurants but for london the ability to just pop into a pub for a quick pint and a pie or fishing chips or and just have a chat just chat about the weather chat about the politics if you'd like but uh, politics best avoided (laughs) but you know the conversations you have in a British pub, you'll get to the heart and soul of many of the British people because the conversations you have just the other side of the door within the confines of a pub are perfectly acceptable and they're not equivalent to what you'd be having out on the street or in a place of work or another social setting. So there's a lovely convivial informality with a light-hearted irreverence of banter and possibly jest where topics which are potentially divisive um can be considered over you know uh, yeah, jug you, of ale you, in my experience so i've lived in the uk for six years now um well actually seven seven coming up seven um in late april and you know i'm not gonna lie like part of the reason one of the top things probably if you ask me why i love living in this country it would be pubs and there is that special atmosphere like you know, I've had, you know, there's been, the, there's the country pub, there's the city pub. We've got, you know, great pubs here in New York. Um, but there is that, like, you kind of touched on that atmosphere. Like, things don't seem to ever get contentious in a pub. There is that convivial atmosphere that does seem to always override. Yeah, I think I agree with that. You come together and it's, that's what a pub is. Never forget pub is for public it's a public space it's not a private members club determined by class or money or creed or status any man woman child usually a dog can enter through the doors and enjoy it all and it's like a washing machine tumbling away with you know bankers and scaffolders and builders and that's the beauty of it and you will rub cheek and jowl at the bar where the meritocracy certainly today there's no class divide you can you know chat uh, amongst all these sort of social um, demographic and that's the beauty of it and as you say you can certainly broach issues in a pub that the others say on the street you're just not gonna chat about you know, something that's in the news or even even football, even sport, you know, imagine the passion involved in that. Within a pub, it can 
often get a little bit feisty and that's why they divide the teams but still the light-hearted yes you go to the pub to relax you're going to have a good time and that's the spirit in which people engage with it and that's what makes it so special it's not the built infrastructure of the pub although they're usually beautiful and interesting it's the culture that's probably what yeah. you're talking about after seven years you love going there for the culture and the feeling it gives you when you experience a great pub yeah and it's like you it's one of those things you could never actually define it it's just in the air it's a very simple pleasure they might look like pretentious places the victorian gym palace are marbles and tile floors beautiful artworks etched glass windows and lighting but realistically i mean the price of let's say a half pint of a nice cask bitter is probably around still two pounds yeah. so that is generally affordable to everybody on the street so you know there's no sort of pretentious security staff or doorman on profiling who's coming in it's an all-encompassing welcome so long as you put some money behind the bar you're welcome to sit down and just let the good times roll so it's yeah it strips away all the social barriers every you know every man whether it's a politician often when the visiting dignitaries visit the prime minister they will always go to the pub near checkers and have a pint of cascale when king charles is on a state visit somewhere or inviting somebody you'll see him behind the bar pulling a nice sort of pint and supping it down. And it's at the heart of almost everything we do, even if you don't do it. So there's lots of people who still don't go to the pubs and still don't drink alcohol and don't enjoy them. But I still believe that they might miss them if they weren't there. No, I was just going to say, like, you might not have gone to a pub for a year or two, but a British person who lives there or anyone else who lives here loves pubs, but you might, you would still fight if that pub in your neighborhood was going to go down. You might still volunteer for that pub. Yep, correct. You will always need it in, in good times and in bad times, because at some point you might need to find somewhere for the christening of a new child or maybe arrange a wake at a funeral or... You just want to set up a local crafting club or a library that gets closed. The library in a small village might go into the pub. You're going into the pub maybe just to pick up a book and you might have a coffee on the way out or just be at the hub of the community. They always say the pub is the hub and at its best, it will always serve the community and reflect the community around it to the best of its ability. So do you, do you, do you actually, would you say that there's anything unique about London pubs compared to the rest of the UK? The unique thing about London pubs is the diversity. So it's not a singular entity. It is this kind of architectural and historical smorgasbord you can enjoy. So if you imagine London, we're really here because of the river. So you start going down to the river pubs. A riverside pub is very different to a pub in the city of London. They're not actually that far away um, per se, but a riverside pub is generally historically going to be frequented by people working in the maritime industry. Those that are coming off the ship would have been your average uh, workaday sailor. So that means these aren't places of beauty um, or opulence, certainly. They're kind of humble, low-ceilinged, wooden-beamed uh, places, which would have been warehouses and jails and probably a brothel upstairs and a real mixed bag. But it wasn't to show off. It's a completely utilitarian nature. 
But then you could go to a converted banking hall like the old Bank of England on Fleet Street with its chandeliers and grade two listed ceilings and marble edifice. And they're within a mile of each other at complete polar opposites or possibly somewhere like the Black Friar. If you like your art and going to the V&A Museum, that was designed by Henry Paul, probably one of the finest artists in the world in the day, all recreated using 50 types of marble in an arts and crafts style. So it's the equivalent of going to a pub designed by David Hockney or Damien Hurst or Jeff Coons with an open checkbook. And it's that diversity of pubs, which and the stories behind them, which cannot be replicated anywhere else. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a sucker for anything with a nautical theme. I think there was one, um, was it possibly a, a pub that has a connection? Well, there's one called the Mayflower? Yep, that's correct. Yep, down in uh, Rotherhithe. So called the Mayflower due to the proximity to the landing stage where the Father Pilgrims left. Is it 400 years ago? Yeah, 400 years. Yeah, 400, so that 400 one, you know. Uh, yeah. For an American visiting London might be worth uh, seeking out, perhaps. But yeah, I remember looking that up and it was like right on the water. It was even like a little steps so you could go down and sit maybe near the water on a nice day. Or... Great pub. Go at low tide. You can sneak down onto the foreshore and do a little bit of mudlarking. So off the back of the pub, everyone will be smoking the clay pipe. So as you go to the back of the Mayflower and other pubs, there'll be hundreds of broken, often Victorian clay pipes, possibly with an uh, insignia of the pub that would have been there in the day, maybe the Turk's Head. And you'll see the stars and stripes uh, flying proudly off the rear terrace. And it's also allegedly one of the last places in the united kingdom you can buy um, uh, american postal stamps behind the bar and it's a nod to the fact that might have been one of your last points of embarkation before you're hitting the east coast of uh, north america and and you can also sign the book of descendants as well so they've got a book of descendants if you can prove or likely prove that you have direct lineage to those on board that ship of i think it was 102 103 people then you can put your name in history too oh great yeah, I mean, picking up a little glass pipe from uh, centuries ago in the mud, that beats like taking a coaster home. <laughs> uh, you have to be careful what you take home. You're not allowed to dig um, too much in the foreshore. And if it's really exciting, if you start finding Roman coins and such like, then you must disclose it to the Museum okay. of London. So you have to disclose your finds. And um, yeah, yeah, don't take everything home. But a, a few clay pipes, they're so ubiquitous, not an issue. Nobody, nobody's going to miss one clay pipe. No. So what are you like when what is that for you when you walk into a pub? And, you know, obviously you were talking London. I'm imagining that you've been to a good majority, but surely not all 3000. But what are the <laughs> you know, what are those signs that like in the first few steps you're like, I think I've got a good one here. I think you can sometimes even tell from the outside. It doesn't have to look like a crackerjack from the outside. But sometimes even if you put your hand on the door, you can look at the uh, brass, often a brass handle. How polished, how well kept is that? How much love has the handle been given? Do we have any broken glass? But that's not everything. You can often you know, it can often conceal a real gem on the inside. But to be honest, I think it's about the welcome. As soon as you walk into a pub, it's that feeling of everything is going to be okay. The first person you make contact with is pleasant, lighthearted, wants to serve you a drink, will give you the time of day. And then 
Yeah, there's little defining X factor. You can't tell immediately either, I don't think. You might, you might guess that it's a great pub from the outside you're walking in, but you might be disappointed in so many ways. So a pub like a church will reveal and you can unravel its fine details the more time you're looking yeah. at little nods. What are the, what's the snacks behind the bar? If you walk in and I see scotch eggs or maybe handmade or homemade pork pies available then i'm thinking this yeah this could be good i don't know the quality of them but i'm thinking if they're homemade I, there was a few signatures there if for they're example putting, I, they're putting the effort in and the love that's what i'm looking for i'm looking for love attention to details are they serving beer in the correct glasses so do you get your timothy taylor's landlord in a timothy taylor's glass etc do they often put it on beer mats? What's the snackage? What's the are there scampy fries? Well, one thing I really love about London pubs is this um, this summertime atmosphere of how things just like spill out. Um, you know, pub they just like I don't know how where it starts or at what point in the day, but you know, you would have more experience with this than I do. But like how you get this atmosphere of just spilling out onto the street. You know, you're on the yep. table, people are out on the picnic tables. Of course, these beautiful flower baskets that have been set up. Surely there's a competition between pubs on like, <laughs> on like, you know, who really knows how to make those flowers look pretty and the, uh, have them dangle the longest. Or yeah, one of my actual jobs is I am a judge of the Royal Windsor Horticultural Show Windsor Pubs in Bloom Awards. So sponsored by Windsor and Eaton Brewery, we have a day going around looking and judging on the hanging basket, all the um, flora. So it's definitely a thing in the city of London. You can become a worshipful member of uh, gardeners there through the liveried companies and be awarded there. But you're right about the spill. If you walk through Soho or maybe Watling Street, maybe after four or five o'clock on a nice sunny spring to summer's evening, you can't tell where people bought their drink. You know, there'll be two or three pubs along the street, but there's just this buzz and melange of noise. And it's this lovely hubbub, you know, people are getting mildly inebriated often, but it just creates this lovely warm fog as people, yeah, spread across the streets of Soho and, you know, watch out for each other as well. It's, there's it, not too many regulations. It's, it's kind of look after each other, look after yourself, don't like look like don't act like an idiot, don't ruin the evening for everyone and yeah, just enjoy it. Yeah, I don't know if if maybe spill is the word for that, but yeah, it's just I'll never forget I was in um we we were in London in like July and it was a really warm day. Um and we were around the Seven Dials area and you know, yeah. I can't stand test, you know, testament to the quality of the pubs or whatnot, but just the atmosphere of just that it was you know, nine o'clock, it was still light out. Um, and just that, that just buzz of people talking and just, you know, yes. there's nothing else quite like it. I love this, uh, the spill out factor. So would you say, yeah. what do you think is better? The spill out factor in the summer when you're out in the sun or when it's cold and you go in and you sit by the fire? I personally, if I had to choose, I would go the winter by the fire. I just think if you're out, it's January, February, little low light days, you're cold, you're wet. The utility and the sort of endorphins that walking into a pub, smelling that the fire's on before you see it, and then sitting down with your dog. I just maybe having a pie and a pint, maybe have a porter or a stout and just 
Yeah, something with some nice gravy, some sausage and mash, and just that is a beautiful thing. So although I'm not a huge fan of winter as a season, the pub provides a great reason to get outdoors, go for a walk, because that's the carrot and stick. You go through the bad weather to enjoy the pub at the end. What, like, what is the signature drink of a London pub? Is it ale? Would you say? Uh, it is. Go in? Yeah. Historically, it would always begin with a cask ale, probably a pint, a pint of cask ale in a British pub. If you're in London, you might go for something like Fuller's London Pride, still brewed in London by the Thames. And it's an unfermented, unpasteurized, non-carbonated, smooth drink off the hand pull, which is rare outside of these um, fair lands so you've got to try it it would be like going to dublin and not having a pint of guinness really but come to london have at least one pint of a local cask ale so it doesn't have to be fuller's it could be maybe a sandbrooks or there's southwark brewery company something something local well kept they when you're pulling those casks ask what's good behind the bar because they only have 72 hours to serve it from when it's um, kind of pumped, really, because, yeah, it's going through secondary fermentation. So they've got to get through 72 pints in 72 hours. So help them out with that. But once you've tried the cask ale and it's a warm, low ABV, warm and pleasant sort of amber nectar, if that still isn't for you, then the other great drink of the city historically is, of course, gin. London dry gin is the benchmark gin that we all know and love wherever you travel around the world. So that could be as simple as a gin and tonic in a pub. Almost every pub is going to do oh, sure. just that straightforward one with an ice and a slice. Or possibly you could go to somewhere if you like a dry martini although I don't like cocktails, at the Seven Stars by the Royal Courts of Justice, Roxy Beaujolais serves what she believes to be one of the best, if not the strongest dry martinis in the whole of London. So, yeah. So basically, yeah, let's go with an ale first. Origin and tonic. Then you're free to go about after that. If you're into craft beer and whatnot, you know, you're probably better off going, you know, to a craft beer specialist bar, maybe. But uh, you could, they're gonna, there's going to be craft beer behind the bar. But let's start with that ale if, if you're looking for that true authentic experience. Definitely. Start with an ale. If you're not sure, go a half pint. It's about 250 mils. Gin and tonic. Uh, yeah, maybe go for a double spirit mixer. And then if you're looking for your keg beers, I guess you've got lots of London options, which you'll find in most London pubs. Uh, you probably find a Camden Hell's Lager. They sponsor Arsenal football team, but it's a lot of it brewed just in North London. You'll find Beaver Town from North uh, East London. Try some of their neck oil, for example. And even if you go into a historic pub and they're generally focused on the more uh, car scale hand pulls often look behind the bar or ask the stuff and they might have some craft beers in bottle or can behind the bar as well so there's a often a wide offering and then some good wines red white and I don't yeah well, there'll be the something for you to enjoy have the ale first that's the authentic local thing to do now what would yep. you think of somebody who visited in, no in november and walked into a pub and asked for a pims <laughs> Um, 
you can try and they would have the spirit mixer and then they'll have the lemonade and the ginger. But of course, the best thing about PIMS is what you put in it with your dormants, which is obviously fresh mint, some strawberries, maybe some other fruits. So they're going to be totally out of season. Yeah. And it's unlikely that, well, almost every pub won't have those available to put yeah, the, in um... it. So. The first time I the first time I visited London, I was in, I was there on my own in November, and I had you know been reading for years about Pims and how it's a signature summer drink, and maybe I hadn't picked up that it was summer. I just thought it was like a signature <laughs> drink, and I was you know I took a walk, took like a hour walk along the South Bank and Cross Tower Bridge, and you know meandered around, and then I was like, okay, I'm walking into a pub. This is my first time. Walked in, sat down, and said, I'll have a Pims, please. And I remember getting a strange reaction. Uh, and then I ended up just with Pims and lemonade. I don't think yeah. I got any garnish. But, you know, I didn't know until years later that I had done. A, <laughs> I created a, a, a bit of a cultural faux pas there. So is there are there yeah. any faux pas that you would say to be aware of? I guess a faux pas would be don't come to the bar and ask for a glass of beer. That's often quite a common thing. They just international visitors just ask for a glass of beer they don't know what size to so go half pint pint um order your guinness first if you're getting guinness as part of your round try and get that order going because obviously a well-poured pint of guinness is going to be a two to three stage process going to take a little bit of time and then of course don't forget it is not table service so even yesterday i was in a nice pub in richmond and then international visitors came in and the first thing they did. I think they were from continental Europe. They went and sat down in the corner, probably for five or ten minutes. That's not a not a problem, but I think it slowly dawned on them that they were not going to be served, and eventually a, would come up. It's not a problem, but you're not going to get a drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's not ideal, put it that way. But it, the penny slowly drops. So come to the bar. There's a gentle etiquette over who gets served, and if someone is waiting before you and then the bartender might come to you and look like you're going to be served you should offer that to the person who's been waiting longer but yeah kind of muscle in don't queue one behind each other it's a long lateral bar so find your place make some eye contact get ready with your order guinness first cocktails if you really were in that sort of type of pub get those in early and then, uh, yeah, just be nice, you know. They work well hard behind quick, the bar. Just have a just a quick mention of we should just have a quick mention of tipping, because that is something that always comes up, and you know that there's a perception that people don't tip in Europe or at pubs, and I think that is a bit over exaggerated because I think you know every time I've offered you know to one for yourself to the bartender, I mean people are always very appreciative and it's not crazy so i do think people should know that tipping does happen i would say always appreciated but never expected i guess on the basis that we have gone to the bar we're using our legwork we're doing some of the hard yards so maybe if you are having a meal in the pub and you're being served to the table you are more likely to kind of tip the server often it might be inclusive in the bill but then the way to do it i think is exactly as you said have a drink for yourself if you've been in the pub for three or four hours having a lovely time that would be the historic moment they might not have that drink now while serving you but historically at the end of their shift they take the money from behind the bar 
pour themselves a drink and they might come and join you with the money that you've given them through the evening. So, you know, they need, you know, it's, it's a relatively lowly paid sector of the hospitality industry. So I think if you want to buy them a drink, give them some tips, they are certainly not offended by it. So you would say that like maybe it's a buy them a drink or a tip per session as opposed to every round. Yes. Yeah. No, it's not Vegas, which is, I think, when last time I was there years ago, like a dollar a drink. But um, I would just round things up. If it's nine pounds for two drinks, just give them 10 pounds and just leave the change and kind of gentle kind of 10 percent or drink if you've been there for a while. It's it's for good service. They're going to provide some entertainment for you, provide good service. And also, yeah, if you're going to be there for several hours or you want to go back the next day, then it's going to help, basically, isn't it? No, you're, 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 but, you're, you're that that t- it never hurts to know for a bartender to look across at a pub or look across the bar and see a, a face that is rem- they remember as a friendly one and a generous one. Yeah, in I guess any the, culture. No, exactly. But I think it is important also to note that if you don't wish to tip or can't tip because you don't have the cash, etc., then they're not going to look at you in a downward way at all. They're not going to chase you out of the kitchen with meat cleavers and that sort of thing. It's, as I say, always appreciated, but zero expectation. If you do, it's like, wow, great. That's that generous gift of humanity. Thank you so much. You know, uh, one of the reasons I had John as well was to talk about liquid history and, and, and the tours that you offer. And obviously this looks like, you know, for someone that wants to learn about pubs, have a drink or two and also learn a little bit about like the offbeat London um, outside of just the big tourist attractions. This seems, it seems like the perfect thing. It's a good mix. It's all about the mix. So irrespective of the pubs, the classic tour we run is just one of the best walks you can do in London from the ancient heart of the city of London 2000 years ago, Roman sort of London with amphitheatres under the ground and Temple of Mithras. And then you walk to the city of Westminster, two cities within the one London, different police forces, different mayoral sort of jurisdictions. And you're walking down Fleet Street. So it's the legal, it's the heart of legal London. It's the heart of journalistic London. And even just walking that route, you really begin to understand the history of London and how its heart beats to this day and of course we punctuate it with probably four classic pubs and they're some of the finest pubs you could get in london being either by the financial powerhouses or in the heart of legal london so they were the great meeting pubs so if you were a politician coming from westminster but you were going to say lloyds of london in the finance you'd meet in the middle somewhere around fleet street your lawyers are there the journalists are there and the pubs would just be the great meeting place so some of these pubs anyone who has anybody has had a pint at the old Cheshire Cheese or places like that. You can go to these places on your own, obviously, just put it into Google and other search engines obviously available. But um, just you can find your way to these pubs, but knitting them together within three to three and a half hours with the context and all the details you can't see and that aren't immediately obvious whilst enjoying the sights and sounds of the city whether that's St Paul's Cathedral through to some of the Royal Courts of Justice the Sir John Stones Museum chewing gum hard on the way and it's just a great chance to hang out really with a local person ideally someone like Will would be born and bred in Camden he used to be big into the music scene up there in the 60s and 70s 
you want to hang out with someone who's seen it all through that lens, you just get to go to the pub with him for three hours, pick his brain, talk about his London, meet some other travellers. And although we call it a tour, it's it's just people going to the pub. It's uh, it's an informal welcome to the city, but a great way to get off your long haul flight, hang out with the local, relax and begin to understand a little bit more. And surely there's going to be mentioned, there's going to be, you're going to be uh, walking in the footsteps of some literary some literary giants at any of these pubs surely yeah huge we used to start uh the walk down at the george inn on borough high street and that is where shakespeare was known to perform in the courtyard of the pub before he moves to the rose theater and latterly, latterly the globe theater so even on our classic tour we can usually see where Shakespeare bought his first house in London, where the last letter addressed to Shakespeare was written. And then you begin bumping into a bit of Charles Dickens in A Tale of Two Cities or David Copperfield. You bump into Samuel Pepys, writer of The Great Diaries and recorder of things like The Great Fire, The Plague, the Cromwellian uh, execution of King Charles I. And then there's Dr. Samuel Johnson, a writer of one of the first English language dictionaries. So, um, yeah, it's the beating heart of the language of which we speak around us to this day. The, um, that St. the Georgian, that's the one, the, the gallery pub. Correct. The last remaining gallery coaching in left in London. So historically important. It's owned by the National Trust. And then it's let back out to um, its Green King at the moment, who run it as a pub. And that's the treasure for visitors and locals is I think in any other country, a pub like the Georgian or the Blackfriars, they are so spectacularly impressive on an architectural and historic basis. They would be museums. These are museum quality pieces. So in other <laughs> countries, you, you pay five bucks just to go for a look at that. But here you pay your five bucks and you just get to see it, you get to drink, you get to touch it, feel it, engage with the history if you want, or just enjoy enjoy your beer. That's the beauty. And when we say gallery, that's like the, that's an architectural note. That's the, like, on the, on the outside, like on the exterior, there's like, can you stand on the galleries? Correct. Yeah. Historically, it would have been the accommodation. So that's the difference between an inn and a pub. If a pub says an inn, like the George Inn, it was a place where you could rest your head. But that section of the building, it's almost terraced. I think, think like a theatre. So when you go to the Globe Theatre, which is only 400 metres away, it's as if the Georgian, which is rectilinear, it's a big square courtyard, has been pushed into the round. So when Shakespeare was performing, you get 500, 600 people into the courtyard. But if you didn't want to be down with the penny stinkers and hoi polloi, you pay a little bit more money and you were allowed up onto the terrace gallery area where you could look down, enjoy the performance, not have your pockets picked and kind of <laughs> the rubbub. And then that architecture from the pub you see largely informs the design of um, theatres that we know to this day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm just fired up to get down there again. Is there anywhere where there's several of the most notable and uh, pubs kind of clustered together where you can like do a little bounce? Down in the historic brewing area, most people are going to go to Borough Market, for example. So in the when you're there, the Georgian is next door. You could go to a small craft beer. The Rake uh, is down there. You have the Royal Oak. You have um, 
What else do you have? Market Porter that we mentioned earlier. If you love Bridget Jones, you can go and see the pub she lived above in the movies. So that's right there in the market. So that's the that's what yeah, that's right. what we know and love them. Not a Guy Ritchie movie goes past without a London pub scene. No question, London is one of the you know best destinations in all of Europe. But since this is a, a, a Europe uh, podcast, I wanted to ask you if you could get what is your dream trip to Europe? If you could go anywhere in Europe, you could design this trip, money's no object, three places in Europe besides London, where are you going? And what are you doing when you get there? This is a good question. And although I should probably be going somewhere beer or bar focused, like Pilsner down in uh, the Czech Republic or something, I'm actually just going to jump, jump on the Eurostar and I'm going to go to Bordeaux, kind of underrated city. Uh, wine is very good. Food is very good. And then I'm probably just going to hire a car and head down towards Biarritz, take the big Atlantic rollers, maybe do some surfing. And ideally, I'm going to go up and over the Pyrenees. You get a little bit of mountain um, scape in there before I'm dropping down to San Sebastian. I haven't been there, but I love the idea of the pinchos and the little bars and having a little beer and a glass of wine with a few snacks. And from my understanding, when we talked about the spill from maybe London pubs and Soho, that's an atmosphere on those little streets that we might get. The food and drink offering, different, but the interaction of humans with food and drink on small alleys just enjoying socializing that's what i want to kind of be a part of and i'm sure there's some fancy three-star michelin restaurants down there so i might go to one of them like arzac out of interest and when i've eaten and drunk too much i'm going to work it all off i'm going to park the car and i'm going to begin the camino i'm going to walk to santiago de compostela and do the camino this is ambitious this is ambitious yeah yeah this is it. This is the route. This is the route of dreams. And then I'm going to burn my hiking boots in the uh, in the cliff. And then I'm either going to get the ferry back across the Bay of Biscay from Santander. Or if this time and budget allows, I will slowly make my way down through Portugal, Porto, Lisbon, approaching uh, places like Seville. And then I'm going to get the ferry across to Tangier to North Africa. I think that feel I love Europe but I kind of lived and worked in Morocco and the feeling of going to North Africa and the exotic and that final kind of moment of looking over the water to another continent would be too irresistible. So while I'm there, it would be rude not to. So yeah, so just to clarify on that, so you're taking the Eurostar to Paris, you're changing, you're taking the train to Bordeaux. Correct. Okay, you're going to probably go out, do some vineyard tours. Oysters. Of course. Now, yeah. this Bordeaux apparently has really um, done a regeneration recently. Yeah. yeah, yeah, beautiful city. It's not too touristy, obviously famous for food and drink. But yeah, you can do the vineyards. But the coastline from there down south to Biarritz is magnificent. About 20, 30 years ago, I was lucky enough to uh, go into railing around the whole of Europe for six or seven months realistically so we saw it pre-euro days when we just had a tent and just kind of oh, visiting wow. all these li little places and you know it was obviously uh the french franks and uh 
Italian lira and drachma in Greece. So you could you could live like uh, kings and queens for very little money. So I know I know Europe very well. So some of it would be a return and a nostalgic trip down memory lane, but hopefully in slightly finer st uh, style. Yeah. No, sleeping I, 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 under I know that feeling. Come back, uh, come back as we're going to do it properly this time. Yeah, the mix again, the rough and the smooth. It's all good, you know. So yeah, so the beer Ritz, that's down on the um the Bay of Biscay. Yeah, Beer Ritz is a great uh kind of French beachside town. It's I'd say it's relatively upmarket. It's off the beaten track. Great surf, great beaches, but it has theaters, has casinos. I guess it's past its heyday, but it's a lovely place to hang out if you love the wild coast and French food, yeah. big sand dunes. It's it's got a lot going for it. But yeah, San Sebastian is a place. At, this is this is going to be a reoccurring theme on this podcast. These places that I've been wanting to get to for well over a decade that I'm <laughs> yeah. constantly being bombarded with how great it is. And San Sebastian is one of these. Like this place, when I walk in one day, as you might as well, because I'm sure you've heard these things. It's going to be like, OK, you better. This is a lot of pressure now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally got I've never made it there. Like British Airways have just opened a direct flight from London City Airport. And it's like, oh, long weekend, but it's too expensive. But I just yeah, I just even the art, I think it's got good art. I think it's got good sculpture. It's got the beaches. It's got the setting. And then I was watching, there was something on a, on a TV about, there's a restaurant called Casa Julia, the steak restaurant, and it's not in San Sebastian. I think it's 30 minutes south, and it's just family run, cooking over open fire, the provenance of their beef, high altitude, grass-fed, and it just looked magnificent. Simple bottle of red. It's not a pub, but it just has this family feeling of tradition and warmth and just brilliance and i've just seen a few places like that even the mountains of the picos de europa look spectacular so if i could detour there that's where i'd be heading even better so thanks again for taking the time and uh again um liquid history we can find you online social media obviously <laughs> Yeah, give us a follow, buy the book if you want to go self-guided and hopefully um, define your drunken detours along the way. Or, yeah, join us for an afternoon stroll through Liquid History, which is 2,000 years of history, four pubs and hopefully some good times. All right. Thanks again, John. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott.